Welcome to the Autobahn Country Club Podcast, where your host, club member John Graybeal, opens the doors to America's premier auto sports club. Now, here's John. Welcome, listeners, to episode number 23. We're going to continue our safety series with a concussion sports medicine expert, our producer, Mark McFarland's wife, Andy, big shout out. She set this interview up so that we can learn a little bit more about concussions, how to treat concussions, uh, what exactly happens when you do get a concussion, and also baseline testing. So Deepak Patel, who is a local physician, joins the podcast. We talk a little bit about his background and then a lot about uh, concussions through the podcast. So I hope you do enjoy it. We're just building on our podcast from last week or last episode with uh, all about helmets. This past week was Speed Fest and a lot of racing going on. Uh, Friday night, uh, my wife and I raced in the chase race. My wife did her very first race in the the novice division of the chase race. Uh, We had a blast and she was a little nervous, but she got out there and she ran it and uh, had a lot of fun. Saturday was wet and rainy. Sunday, wet and rainy. A lot of there was some amazing racing going on. Uh, some big spins on the on the uh, big track. Uh, if you would like to know all about the results or how to find the results, if you go to Audubon uh, AudubonMembers.com, you can find. Uh, if you just go to Member Racing and then down to Racing Results, it takes you to. Uh, speedhive.mylaps.com and you can go through there and you can look at the exact racing results, qualifying and everything. MyLaps is the provider for our timing system at the track. On Sunday uh, was the second kart race and as far as I know the first female winner of any of the divisions and that was the open division won by my wife, Heidi Grabiel. So her first uh, race, chase race in a car was uh, Friday. And her second cart uh, race was this Saturday. And uh, she won the open division chase race format. It was wet. It was slidey and slippery. And it offered a lot of uh, challenges and unique challenges. It was a lot of fun. So speed uh, or speed fest was fantastic. I had a was planning on staying up. Well, I did stay up at the track all weekend, but I had planned on a staying in a camper. So Outdoorsy is a online company that allows people who own campers to rent them out to other people, much like Turo does for cars. Uh, the gentleman that I had rented my camper from had a death in the family at the last minute, so was unable to provide me the camper. Our producer, Mark McFarland, he also had a camper, and he was able to take us in, and uh, we got to stay with him. So uh, he saved, uh, saved the day at the last minute. So we had uh, a great time staying at the track all week. It was a little rainy and a little wet, but uh, it, it wasn't too bad. It was a lot of fun, actually. One thing I've been meaning to mention and talk about on the podcast was the car that I bought last December. So I had been a longtime European car driver. My daily driver was a Audi A8, had 140,000 miles on it. I do drive a lot. 
because of the touring cars and uh, the manufacturers bring these cars in and allow them to be at the track for us to use for lunchtime touring, some, some manufacturers do that, some dealers do that. Cadillac, I do believe that uh, the Cadillacs at our club are offered by the are provided by the manufacturer. I would never thought of myself as a Cadillac driver or owner, but because of the CT6 they had last year, I really really liked that car, and I was intrigued by it. I had heard about Super Cruise, and Super Cruise is hands off self driving. It Cadillac, the CT6 is the only car that has it. It's probably the most advanced technically advanced car out there the super cruise is completely hands-off where it's only on the interstate where almost every other provider of some type of hands-off driving co-pilot autopilot you have to to uh, touch the steering wheel so the car itself has to know that you're still engaged and still watching and still attentive the ct6 gets around that with a camera that looks at your eyes and I live down by Bloomington, Illinois. I drive up to Chicago to Midway Airport, 113 miles, 111 of it is uh, on the interstate. So the CT6, once I get on the interstate, I press Super Cruise and I don't touch the steering wheel. And sometimes it works the whole way. With construction and stuff, it'll turn off. But uh, I have actually the entire time, 111 miles, haven't touched the steering wheel. And it does an amazing job. It's got a twin turbo uh, 3.0 liter V6, great power, great responsiveness in the snow. I don't know if I've ever had a better car in the snow. It's quite amazing. Night vision on it. It's just a great car. So I just wanted to be uh, to put a big shout out to Cadillac for providing the track some cars. And if they didn't provide the track with cars, I probably wouldn't be a CT6 and Cadillac owner. I, so far, it's been tremendously reliable. I've already got 16,000 miles on it. It's just a great car. And if the reliability it continues, I might be a Cadillac owner for a long, long time. So if you haven't seen the CT6, uh, there were some rumors that it wasn't gonna, they were going to discontinue it. But as far as I know, they're still going to be making it. And I know there's going to be a V8, that uh, V8 built by hand-built down in Kentucky, I think at the Corvette factory, they're going to put that big V8 in the CT6 sometimes sometime this year. So uh, with that in mind, thanks Cadillac. Thanks Audubon Country Club for uh, putting it all together. And next week or next episode, we'll be back with a track celebrity to find out a little bit more about them. So now the Audubon Podcast would like to welcome Deepak Patel to talk about concussions and safety. Hello. Hello, this is John Grabiel. Hey, you have to Thanks for uh, taking the time out to talk to us today. Oh, no, it's My pleasure. Did you, uh, Dr. Patel, did you, are you from, uh, where, where are you at exactly at now? Are you in Bolingbrook or? Uh, no, my office is actually in Aurora and Yorkville. Okay. Are you from up and around that area? Yeah, well, I live in uh, the Naperville area. Is um, how how long have you been uh, in that area up there? I've been here uh, about ten years now. Tell, tell me a little bit about uh, about you. What, what was your first uh, interest in in medicine? Is that did that start as a young age or? Oh, sure. 
so I was fortunate my both my parents were physicians. Um, but only my father worked as a physician. Uh, we were lived in a small town, and uh, so my father was kind of a, a small town doctor. And um, so I had a good exposure that way, but my, uh, my true calling came when I was in high school and I was able to uh, work on the ambulance and become an EMT in high school. Oh, really? So that, that really started my whole interest in uh, medicine and becoming a physician. That, that's pretty young to be an EMT, isn't it? Yeah. Actually, at the time, I was, I think they said I was the second youngest uh, ever um, in the state to become a EMT, so I was pretty excited. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's very cool. And uh, where did you go to school? Did you go to school around here, or where did you go to school, your undergrad stuff? Uh, so undergrad, I I did uh, a year of college at Loyola, and then I um, applied to medical school in Europe, which was a, a six-year program, so we didn't have to necessarily finish a bachelor's degree. Um, so I applied to that, and I thought, well, I might save a year of my life and get in. Uh, to medical school earlier and uh, be able to start my career faster. So I was fortunate to be accepted and I, I started on a, a faster track that way. Oh, interesting. There are, are there, I think I have a friend of mine who's, whose daughter is in uh, a, a, a similar type program, maybe in Kansas City. Do they have something like that now in yeah. Kansas City? Yep. yep, they have a few, uh, a few of those uh faster track programs throughout the U.S. as well. Medical school over in Europe, and where, where did you do your residency? I did residency. I came back to Illinois and uh, did residency in Rockford. So I did my family medicine residency there. Okay. So you both do you both specialize in family medicine and sports medicine, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. What was the interest? So specifically, we have you on today kind of to talk about concussions, head injuries, and some baseline testing. That's kind of where where our interest specifically is. I'm sure we could talk about a lot. I could talk about a lot of things in medicine yeah. <laughs> that interests me. With the sports medicine aspect of it, how did, how did the concussion area interest peak with you? Uh, so you mean early on in my training? Yes, or yes. when did I decide yeah. I want to do sports medicine? Or? Yeah, yeah, like early on when you decided, you said this was something that, or or did the, you know, specific concussion head injury area, did that start later in your career, or is that something you've always been interested in? Yeah, so I, I, I can recall uh, having my own first concussion when I was in 7th or 8th grade. Oh, what happened? football. Oh, playing football. So uh, I can recall those days, but that's not necessarily what prompted it for me. I know growing up, I played sports, giving, uh, given living in a living in a small town, uh, that was the thing to do was to play sports. So I had opportunity to play a lot of sports and became injured, and um, I just fell in love with playing and competing and training, and um, you know that was just always a passion of mine. When I started looking into training for family medicine, I realized that I could do this subspecialty and become a specialist in care of athletes and sports injuries and physical problems. And I thought that would be wonderful given all the injuries I know I've had and 
dealt with and I thought I could understand, relate to other athletes and people who have to miss their sport or their activity or their daily daily uh, functions because of that. Sure. So early on I took a, a big interest in that in my residency training as well. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to be um, a part of, you know, minor league, uh, semi-professional basketball, hockey, things like that. And so I really had a very well-rounded experience just during residency. And then when I got to the point where I could apply for that training, I was accepted at University of Michigan. So I did my sports medicine training there. Okay, and that's the University of Michigan, that's in Lansing, is that right? Uh, that's in Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor, sorry, that's right, Ann Arbor. Touching back on, I know that concussions, it wasn't a big deal when I was a kid. I mean, yeah. you know, it yep. just wasn't a Same big here. deal. The NFL issues with concussions and stuff like that, was that the big genesis for changing the way everybody looked at concussions, do you think, or... Was there a turning point? I think point? that's helped quite a bit. Uh, you know, I followed this through the years, and yeah, from ever since I was in training, concussions became a big part of what sports physicians treated and managed and evaluated. Around that time, we started having a little better consensus and evidence-based training or guidelines on how to manage concussions, and that's when I think the focus and the spotlight started on recognizing these and how we could probably manage these better. And, you know, that's just continued to evolve over the years. I think with more and more time, we've had more public interest, public education. But I have to say, I can remember clearly early in my career, you know, having to explain what a concussion is to a parent who's looking at their kid and they see that the kid looks perfectly normal on the outside and they just can't conceptualize what it means that they're their brain is injured and yet they can talk and they don't have any bruises on the outside. So it was it was quite a challenge to get them to understand it wasn't safe for continuing to play or we had to do some special uh, modifications for them. Right. I can see I can see that be a challenge. Um, so technically a concussion is just simply a brain injury? Or, I mean, when I think of a concussion, I think of, well, your brain actually making contact with the, with your skull. Is that a simplistic understanding? Yeah, so it, um, it, the, the purest definition is concussion is a type of, the medical term we use is a mild traumatic brain injury. So there has to be some kind of force onto the brain or the head itself. Um, it doesn't always have to be direct impact on the inside of the skull, but sometimes rotational, shearing forces, um, back and forth, jostling of the brain, any of those where it's just shaken up a little bit can cause a concussion. But in reality, you know, we probably shake our heads throughout the day and it doesn't always cause a concussion. So it does take a certain amount of force that then leads to some impairment of how the the brain actually works or functions. So, so I'm a long-time, 40-year martial arts guy. I boxed my whole life, trained pro fighters. Mm-hmm. Is, so 
in the ring, and you know, the last pro fighter I trained was a UFC fighter. If he if he knocks someone out, or when he did knock someone out, because he was pretty good, when he did knock someone out, does that automatically mean you have a concussion when you in a boxing match or a mixed martial arts match? Does that mean you have a concussion when you get knocked out? Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, it does. And uh, but you know that brings up a good story. I tell most folks is I have a good friend of mine who's also a sports medicine physician who is the I think chair of ringside boxing for the state of New York. And every time I see him, I, I ask him, how do you do your job when we are trying to prevent or treat concussions and you're managing or covering a sport where that's the goal and the intention is to create that. But it just uh, can be a pretty challenging job and he, he admitted to that. It is quite a challenge. Hmm. You know, being the Audubon Country Club podcast here, we're we're most yeah. interested specifically in, in in head injuries that would happen in a in an automobile or a go kart, a racing kart. I've spoken with uh, several helmet testing organizations and, and different manufacturers, you know, trying to set up different um, uh, interviews. And one thing that is to the advantage of what we do at the club is you have to wear a helmet. There's no need to con- convince someone, you know, if you're a bicyclist, you really need to wear a helmet. Or if you're a motorcyclist, you really need to have a, you know, we always have a helmet on no matter what we're doing. I assume there's still, even with the best helmets, there's still concussions or potential concussions um, that happen. Is that, would that be correct? And, yeah, absolutely. And actually, I think we've been led to believe that concussions, uh, well, actually, I should say that helmets are the best way to actually prevent concussion. And that's actually not true. Um, there's a very limited areas where helmets have actually been proven to prevent a concussion. But for the majority of sports and injuries, helmets do not actually prevent a concussion. And when I teach other physicians about this, I often ask, well, why do we, you know, even in primary care, if you go see your doctor, your pediatrician, your family doctor will always tell you if you're going to do something where you have a risk of hurting your head, you should wear a helmet. And the reality is, is we're using the helmet to prevent the major traumatic brain injuries. The skull fractures, the bleeds on the brain, the really, really bad, serious um, emergency injuries that can happen to the brain. And that's where the helmets do show benefits. But for concussions, unfortunately, they really don't help as much as we would like. Wow, very interesting. There is a conversation, this is just slightly off topic, there's a lot of conversation. Uh, I, I'm also a big super. The one sport that I watch nonstop, start to finish, is supercross, indoor motorcycle, yeah, sure. indoor motorcycle racing. Um, the one thing that you notice, of course, everybody has a helmet on, but sliding down to the neck protector, there's few that, that's not required to wear a neck protector. Some do and some don't. We have heard a wide variety of. Uh, information, anecdotal information about the validity and effectiveness of neck protectors. So I'm going to assume that a Hans protector in a car that's strapped to us 
I'm going to assume is is it's pretty widely accepted as a as a very good safe um, piece of equipment to have to keep your neck stabilized in a crash. Moving on to the carding is where I think that it or slash motorcycles where I think that there is it's unclear at least to me do these neck protectors that hold a, a, a collar around your neck that that hold the um, helmet in a certain area or certain place. Do you have any information about the effectiveness of those? No, that's a great question. I actually, um, I have not seen the science behind those. Um, as I don't necessarily focus on as much in my practice on neck injuries as I do the concussions. So, you know, I, I would presume they probably do have some benefit as the, the injuries they can suffer can be pretty violent. Um, some protection probably is better than nothing, but, you know, I, I'm always a little cautious with over-padding, over-protecting, and just strapping on something because we think it's a good idea. You know, we've learned over the years in sports medicine that, you know, it's not as simple as put a brace on it and you'll never get it injured. You know, we've seen people wear, you know, knee braces end up hurting their ankles more, People wear ankle braces may have more knee injuries. So it's not always, you know, strap on whatever protection you can. So, you know, that's just the word of caution I would encourage your listeners, but it sounds like a reasonable safety approach. I just don't have specific scientific data to support it. Sure, yeah. Okay, so we have a potential for a head injury in an accident, carding accident. Um, car accident. Um, the old questions are, you know, what year it is and who's the president. Yeah. And are, are those all valid questions that we get? Those are, they always make me laugh because, uh, <laughs> you know, I remember growing up, that's exactly what our coaches would do. And uh, when, it terms, when it comes to concussions, those are actually completely unreliable. So they're not helpful really to tell us someone isn't concussed or they are. Um, it just tells us a little bit about, you know, how familiar are they with their surroundings, but there's still a lot more we need to look at to, to verify if it is a concussion or not. So we have um, full um, paramedics at our track anytime an operation, anytime racing operations going on. I think it's very beneficial. One of the only yeah. places I've ever seen with there's always um, paramedics there. From after that care, what do we need to do as racers and or friends, parents, loved ones? What are some of the signs that we need to uh, immediately look for that says, hey, this is the difference between, hey, you need to take it easy, you need, we need to get you to the emergency room, or is there ever a, hey, you take it easy? Is it always straight to the emergency room if we notice something, if they haven't been, if they haven't been transported right there at the accident? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, you know, typically what we're worried about, again, for taking them to the emergency room is really do they have anything that would tell us it's a major traumatic brain injury where there may be serious damage in the brain, bleeding, things that could be irreversible, etc. So, you know, just simple things you can do. And, you know, I'd encourage your listeners to look at the CDC website. They have a list of red flags and things to watch for. Um, and I think that would be a great reference to keep. 
Um, but some things that we talk about are, you know, a headache that's just progressively getting worse and worse. Um, if there have numbness, weakness, coordination's off. Um, a big one for most folks is really if they're throwing up and vomiting. So um, some nausea, nausea or feeling sick to your stomach is common for a concussion, but actual vomiting does tell us that we should look into this a little further. Um, you know, passing out or losing consciousness, that also can. And especially if it's more than a couple of seconds, they definitely should be seen in the emergency room for that as well. Yeah, I think you just answered my, my, my next question, which was what, what can be done? And I guess those things are with the breeding, bleeding or swelling. Um, I suppose I get a, is the CT scan still the, is that the appropriate way to evaluate? The, yeah, uh, yeah, that's exactly correct. So, um, you know, when we're worried about more serious brain injuries, uh, the first step in the ER is usually to get a, a CT scan or a CAT scan. We've noticed... You know, not not much of a problem is, and I remember my I got hit in the head with a golf club as a kid. You know, my parents, oh, don't go, don't fall asleep, don't fall asleep. Is that yeah. something that you know, at at night we can't fall asleep, or should we have somebody watching us? What's this? What, what, were my parents way off the base on that? What was the, that story? Yeah, so we've we've done a one eighty on that one. That was common wisdom for several years, but now what we do do is we try to watch the person for at least a few hours, if not several hours, while they're awake. And, you know, when it is time to sleep, we don't wake them up every hour or every couple hours. We let them sleep, um, provided they're not getting worse. So, you know, someone who hits their head, and you can watch them for a couple hours, make sure that their headache isn't getting really bad, they're not, you know, getting any other changes that are really bothersome, and we can let them sleep and check on them again in the morning, provided things are not changing. Okay. Is it bad to take an, an aspirin or Advil or something after a, a wreck? Is that a bad... That yeah, a bad? So that's another great question I get commonly. So, um, yes, it is not a good idea to take aspirin or an anti-inflammatory. And anti-inflammatories would include things like ibuprofen, Aleve, Motrin, Aleve, uh, naproxen, things like that. Those can cause a further bleeding. So... Especially in the first day or two after an injury, we do not recommend people take those. So it would be a Tylenol would be something you could take. That would be yeah, so acetaminophen or Tylenol, those would be the safer options uh, for a headache. And, you know, some people will ask, well, should I try not to mask the, the headache or the pain by taking those? And, you know, I think it's a judgment call if, if it's a, a decent headache that's preventing someone from... Uh, getting some rest and getting a little better, more comfortable, then I think it's reasonable to give them something. If they can judge as to whether or not it's getting worse despite the medication, then again, that's probably more a serious finding that you should get evaluated in the room or evaluated sooner rather than later. In regards to, so I'd like to move on to the, the baseline testing. Have I not asked any any questions or anything that you'd like to share before we move kind of to that, that baseline testing uh, area? Um, you know, one thing I'd like to add, because this happens quite a bit, a lot of folks will say, well, we went to the ER, they did or did not do a CAT scan, they said, you know, you're fine, just take it easy and get back to usual things. Um, the common question I get is, well, if the CAT scan was normal, then how do we know they have a concussion? 
And so I usually end up explaining that to most people, so I was hoping your audience would appreciate that as well. Um, a CAT scan actually, if it shows anything, it's a more serious brain injury than a concussion. So when we don't see anything on the CAT scan, that's when the concussion is still possible. And, you know, the simple way I tell folks is anytime you hit your head or your head gets injured in any way and you're not able to use your brain appropriately or properly and it's not working right, you have a concussion until someone medically trained can prove otherwise to you. You know, the emergency room is a good place to be evaluated for more serious injuries, but often they'll ask you to follow up with someone else to look at that concussion and that does still need to happen because there are a lot of consequences and problems that can cause a concussion to linger if it's not handled properly early on. So if you do go to the emergency room, you make sure it's nothing more serious than a concussion, then it is something that you should see someone to follow up and make sure that you're uh, doing the right things to get back appropriately. We assume, okay, so again, anecdotal information from, from boxing and fighting. When a guy gets knocked out once, he seems to be more susceptible to the knockout the next time. Is that is that pretty much correct, that the concussions are, are easier to happen to you or it takes less force? No, not necessarily. Um, if once someone has one concussion, all the, the next concussions they get, what we do know is, they actually last longer for each one. And so that's more of a trend rather than it's easier to get knocked out. And the only other caveat to that is, you know, there's a problem where when you get a concussion, and if you haven't recovered fully and you hit your head again, that's when it, it doesn't take as much force that second force to make the concussion last longer to cause more problems in terms of how bad they feel. And, you know, one thing that I try to remind most of my patients about is there's something very serious that can happen with a concussion. And that second hit, it doesn't have to be very much, but that's why in some instances when that happens, there have been kids who've actually died or been paralyzed from that second hit. Wow. We call that, we call that second impact syndrome. And it's, it's a really a, a tragedy that happens. And this is a big reason why every state in the United States now has a law on concussions, that people need to be cleared. If they have a concussion, they need to be cleared by someone medically trained before they go back to play. With the concussions, the what's the long, or what's an average period? Is it is it hour, days, weeks that... that that need to be time, you know, depending on the severity, I'm assuming, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it varies. Uh, what, what we know is that most concussions are better within 7 to 10 days. And about 80 to 90% will resolve within 3 to 4 weeks. And then there's a small percentage that can linger on beyond that. Oh, wow, that long. Okay. Yeah. I'm trying to think of times that I've banged my head and it doesn't, it doesn't seem... You know, I, I I never I had to jump off a motorcycle one time and hit my head pretty hard, but I don't I don't remember the um, you know a long term headache or or anything. I, um, and unfortunately, I have been hit once or twice or kicked once or twice too. 
um, interesting. I, I didn't realize that they would they would last that long. And so I would assume that includes driving, you know, driving on the racetrack. Something happens and you have a concussion. Yep. You don't want to get back on that racetrack. Absolutely, do not want to get back until you follow no. up with a physician to say, "Hey, I'm no. I'm I'm okay to get back and put my helmet back on and get behind the behind yeah. the wheel." I mean, it, it truly is life threatening, and and it's a dangerous risk that someone would take. So, um, whenever I have a chance to educate my patients or anyone about it, that's one of the big things I try to remind them. This is not the simple, "Oh, you got your bell rung," you know, just take it easy and see how you do. That person may not walk or talk again, and, and it is serious. And unfortunately, the second hit, um, if you haven't recovered from your first concussion, that second hit doesn't have to be nearly as hard, and it can be catastrophic. Wow, that's that's really good. That's something I'm really going to take away from this is to really be protective of, of those things. Um, baseline testing. That's how we yeah. kind of found your name and, and um, you know, kind of came to the forefront here. Explain a little bit who, what the baseline testing is, I guess, would be my first question. Okay. So, you know, baseline testing, like the name suggests, it's testing we do at the beginning. And so the, the goal is there are different types of tests we can do before, well, to look at someone's brain itself. And there are some computerized and digital tests that we can perform that look at how the brain works. And then we save that information. And then if someone does get a concussion, we use that previous information, retest them, and compare it to that baseline. And it helps us judge a little bit better as to how much uh, damage or uh, how much they're really struggling, how much problems they're really having. So with that baseline testing, I, I do the baseline testing. I come in, I bang my head. Do, do you initiate the same test right away when I would come into the office or to see you? Or Yeah, I mean, provided uh, you're not, uh, depending on how bad you're really feeling, if that's something I think you could tolerate doing, then we uh, we will try to do it. Sometimes we wait a day or two and, and do it shortly after that. But, uh, yes, it is something we do after the injury. The, the test itself uh, during the baseline is very similar to what we'll do after they're injured. It, they do change a lot of the, the specifics of it to see if, um, just to make sure someone hasn't memorized it and remember to try to regurgitate that information. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so who, who are the best, I mean, is everybody the best... I would assume everybody's a candidate for this baseline testing. They can reach out to, um, we'll give your contact information in a second. They can reach out to you or, or a lo- another phys- local physician and, and to get it. But I'm sure everybody's a candidate, correct? Yeah. Um, you know, the testing, so, you know, let me just uh, back up and explain. Specifically in my office, we do two types of testing. There's one computerized neuropsychological testing which is similar to what a lot of the high schools do. Um, we use a version or a company called Impact. And so we administer the Impact uh, baseline test in an office. Um, you know, Impact itself is a brand. There's a couple other companies, and some high schools use a few different companies. 
but um, Impact itself is one of the more popular wide known. Um, they have certification programs, and actually I've gone through that. So I'm a certified Impact consultant, so you know I've been tested and proven. I understand how the testing works and how I can use it, mm-hmm. how um, where it's valuable and some of the pitfalls of testing. So that computerized test we do, um, we can do in our office. There are, like I said, some of the high schools do that for contact sport athletes. There may be some club sports that administer it as well. And then there are some other providers uh, throughout the area, some physicians, pediatricians, sports medicine doctors who administer that as well. Now, the other test that we do specifically in our office is a balance test. And, you know, this is more kind of the cutting-edge scientific stuff that we, we're working on where we have uh, an iPad device that has a special program that measures balance in different positions. And here again, we do a baseline test, so we see what the balance looks like in these positions. It's digitally recorded and saved. And again, if they, someone has a concussion, we retest them and we try to see how far off they may be and um, what their balance looks like as a little bit more information as to see how much damage has been done. Hmm. Very interesting. Uh, Oh, you were also asking me about who can do this. So um, both tests are approved for five years old and up. So we can test people all the way down to five years old, and including adults, we're able to do testing on. So both of these tests we are able to do. Yeah, that's pretty young to... Okay. But I can see the importance of it for sure. If you get, let's say, uh, your office does the testing, and I'm out in Denver and injure my head, uh, first of all, I have to remember where I'm from, right? And, yeah, right. Um, and then reach out and then have, but is that something that is easily shared between offices or emergency rooms or physicians? Yeah, it's a great question. That's a little bit more challenging. Um the the balance testing is not able to be transferred to other providers. Um, the computerized neuropsychological testing, uh, the impact testing specifically, that can be shared depending on the provider. Now, here again with impact itself, because of my then training, I, I'm able to view and share data with from schools, but I can't necessarily give my data or my testing I've done to to other schools or other providers unless they are uh, a practicing provider who's been approved by the company, impact company itself okay. to receive that. So it is a little more challenging that way. Hmm. Okay. So I think, you know, my advice is usually do the test, do the baseline at a provider you think you could see if you were injured. And then when you are injured, follow up with that provider uh, to maintain that continuity and you don't have to worry about transferring that information and if it's accessible or not. Okay, that's that's a good question. So I'm, I live down by Bloomington. I should find somebody down by Bloomington who does the baseline testing. So, you know, um, you know, a little closer to home, I'm more likely where I might, you know, fall off my tractor or something or um, at least come home after a... You know, maybe I banged into the wall or something. I could come home at least go to them. But that's 
That's a good point. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's more reasonable. Okay, well, thank you so much. It's been very enlightening. Um, I, I know that we, we're, we're, tr- we're trying to give our listeners a lot of information on a lot of different topics, and, and um, I think this is very important. If someone would like to reach out to you for that baseline testing, uh, what's the best, uh, does your office have a website or how, how can they contact you to make an appointment and come in and see you? Yeah, so they can call our office. Uh, that's probably the easiest. Uh, you know, I'm employed through Rush Copley. So you could try doing rushcopley.com and then search for the concussion testing or my name, Deepak Patel. Um, but if you want to call directly to our office, our office phone number is 630 Two three six four two seven zero, and you know when you're coming in for a baseline test, it's a really simple process. You, you don't even actually see me. You just call and you say, "I'd like to do baseline testing," and they'll ask you, "Do you want to do?" Uh, they'll verify you want to do both the impact testing as well as the balanced sway test, and they'll schedule you for a nurse visit. The nurse will uh, get you in um, after you've. Uh, pay the, the fee and then they'll put you on both tests and the process takes probably about a half hour, 40 minutes and then once you're done, the data is saved and hopefully we don't have to see you again for an injury but if we do, then we'll have the information ready to go. Great. Um, that, that's fantastic. Uh, once again, I'd just like to thank you so much for your time this evening and uh, um, uh, I'm down here in, in Louisville. I'm an airline pilot also, so I'm, I'm down oh, here on a lay, layover in Louisville. And uh, and uh, you took time out of your schedule this evening to, to, to call to call down here, and uh, I do appreciate that. Thank you so much. My pleasure, and uh, good luck to all of you and your, your listeners. And uh, I hope you guys uh, maintain your great uh, safety standards and continue to do well. All right, well, thank you. Well, that's the show for uh, June 19th. Thanks for listening. I, I found some stuff very in, in, interesting on, on our interview today. A lot of things I had wrong. A lot of things where I think just old and outdated, infor- outdated information I had about concussions. So it was a big learning experience for me. If you liked it, please let me know. You can email me, podcast at audubonsc.com. You can stop and talk to me. If you hear my voice and you don't know what I look like, please stop and talk to me and at the track and say what you like, what you didn't like. If you have any suggestions whatsoever on an interview or topic, please let me know. I think uh, one of the things that I really like is some of the other events that take place that are outside people that come into rent the track. One of them's coming up June 29th and 30th. That is Grid Life. Grid Life is... Well, most of the people are younger than me. I'm in my 50s. There, it's a lot of Japanese cars. They have a, a, they go all around the country, and they have music. They have this car show that's great. They go out and do high-performance driving in these cool, tricked-up, mostly Japanese cars. And they have a, the, the car show is really neat. Oh, yeah, the drifting. They drift on the big track. Now, we do have some drifting clubs that come out and use the skid pad the local drifting club does that and if you want to ride go down there 
you can talk to Kyle Nato when you see him at the track and when they're going to be out there next, and you can go down and get a ride in a drifting car. The Grid Life, they actually drift on the big track, which um, is pretty cool. It's pretty neat to say to see, and um, um, I, I really like it. Now, there's a lot of other things that go on at the club, like tomorrow on the 19th is the Audubon Performance Drive, and then the Audubon Experience, LAPS, which is another group that comes out and does high-performance driving training, you know, like the Miata Club, or I think a couple weeks ago with the uh, Shelby Club was there. And uh, on uh, July 13th, that's another teen driver safety training. My son just turned 15. So when he turns 16, which is, you do have to be 16 for this program, uh, I guarantee you he'll be out there and he'll be, he'll be out there and he'll be in that program. Well, that's about it this week. Our podcast comes out every two weeks through the driving season. If I, hard to believe, but some people I talk to and say I host a podcast, they never even heard that we do have a podcast. So please take this podcast, hit the share button, message it to, you know, text it to somebody, say, here, have you checked this out? They don't necessarily have to be a member. I'd love it when people subscribe. It does help me. The downloads are coming right along, but I, there's a lot more people downloading it than are subscribed to it. When you do subscribe, you do get that automatically pushed to your phone or your whatever device you're listening to the podcast on. You do get it pushed there. Once again, it comes out every two weeks on Wednesday, and uh, talk around the track is a as a, the email that really keeps us updated on all the information that takes place at the track. Any changes, uh, where the members are going to paddock this weekend, or any information that comes out like that that we need to know. If you're not getting talk around the track, please uh, get in touch with uh, me. You can get in touch with me, and I'll get you in the right spot. I think you need to talk to Terry Weber uh, about that uh, to make sure that you're on the on the list. Or Kevin Rogers, and Kevin's email is Kevin Rogers at AudubonCC.com. K e v i n r o d g e r s at AudubonCC.com. So, oh, the one thing I wanted to also mention. Uh, Speed Fest this weekend, uh, RSVPing for events. In a, co- see, in, in a couple weeks, we're going to play our episode with Chef, chef Peggy. How in the world does our fantastic, wonderful executive chef put together the menus and the food that she does? It's just amazing. But one thing that I was uh, just curious about was um, how well we as a group do RSVPing to events. If you don't RSVP to the, you know, the brunches or the dinners or the events, the club is has a very challenging. Uh, it's very challenging for them to plan the appropriate amount of tables, chairs, food, people, help, service. So that is one thing that I am going to make sure that I do particularly well is when we are going to be in an event. As soon as I know it email the RSVP on everything that comes out in that talk around the track asks for an RSVP and uh, it just seems to me that it would be tremendously helpful for all of our great staff to know that we're going to come and how many people are going to come there or be or per- be participating so I encourage all of us including me and the Graybill family 
to make sure that we RSVP in an appropriate amount of time so our staff can give us the absolute best treatment and the best experience possible. Well, that's it for this podcast, June 19th, 2019. Thanks again for listening. Have a great week and have fun on the track. You've been listening to Autobahn Country Club Podcast, where your host, club member John Graybill, opens the doors to America's premier auto sports club. Join us next time for Autobahn Country Club Podcast.